coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, in consideration of climate change, one year after Trump declared the U.S. would pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, we meet a couple who each fights to protect the environment, but in very different ways. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined in the studio by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Ross. So we've got a fun show today with our first installment of a new segment we're calling Ride Share with Shireen. Two weeks ago, producer Shireen Bargi took a lift and met a couple. Both of their work relates to the environment. One documents emissions of cities and corporations to help with mitigation, and the other is a composer who finds inspiration in the environment, like a musical he's developing about a man who's been struck by lightning seven times. It's fitting that we're doing this particular installment roughly on the anniversary of Trump's declaration that he wants to pull the U.S. from the Paris Climate mm -hmm. Agreement. Mm -hmm. So can we talk about the environment? Yeah, let's talk about the environment a little bit. Go ahead. Well, some news in the last couple of days. Plastic straw ban seems to be gaining some momentum. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're concerned about this. My kids might be. How are they going to drink their bubble tea? Yeah, I mean, how am I going to drink mine? Your milkshakes. That's what I'm wondering. Paper straws. Paper straws. I, mean, I don't know. Still straws. Yeah, still straws. It's true. But problem with the plastic ones, we can't recycle them. Did you know yesterday, Wednesday, was World Ocean Day? I did not know yesterday was World Ocean Day. So some students gathered with Brad Lander. He's a Brooklyn-based city council member to demand a ban on styrofoam in the city, mm. a ban that was passed by the city council five years ago, mm -hmm. but two industry-funded lawsuits held that up and mm -hmm. blocked that from happening, which is kind of crazy. I think we're going to look in to see who those two industries are. I mean, the, the people behind it, I guess, industry funded the styrofoam industry, but we're going to try to see who's directly behind it, maybe do a little bit more on that. We'll see if there's any momentum. A few weeks back, when there was that snow falling from the sky. I heard about Fort it. Green. Winter yes. had finally ended. It was like 50 degrees out. Yes, but then all of a sudden. Snow. Yes. But it wasn't snow. It was it like was... construction foam Ugh. falling from the sky, like lots of it for Ugh. a long time. Oh, God. So Lander and the students, they were talking about that. A concern, of course, mm -hmm. but it just will flow into the ocean, we're told. Mm. Um, it'll act like a sponge. It'll break up. The fish will then think these are edible fish eggs. Ross. We'll eat it. It will get into the food chain. We will consume it. Ross, please don't tell me that. That's terrible. I mean, I'm really excited that it was World Ocean Day. I am less excited about the fact that we are apparently polluting the ocean so terribly. It makes me really, really sad. And that we're ingesting styrofoam. And that we're ingesting styrofoam, which is most likely the beginning of why we need to replace certain parts of our human bodies with robotic parts. Oh. Like, like a whole like a Like an iRobot, yeah. but with a human. Don't worry about it. Okay, okay coming up. Right Share with Shireen drops off its first two guests at the studio. Don't go away. Okay, this is the first installment of an experimental segment. We're calling it Ride Share with Shireen. That's because one of our 112BK producers, Shireen, takes ride shares and is always talking to her fellow passengers, who more often than not are Brooklynites. Recently, she met a couple engaged in environmental issues, one through policy, one through art. She found it very uplifting because she was using Lyft, 
Consider this a continuation of their conversation, this time with me, and fittingly, it comes on the one-year anniversary of the day when Trump declared that he'd pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, a day that confirmed our worst fears, that climate change denial wasn't just rhetoric, it would become policy. There have been many responses to this from both a local and personal perspectives. That's where we're going to pick up the conversation with Katie Walsh, senior manager at CDP, welcome to 112BK, and Benjamin Wiener, playwright and composer. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank oh my goodness, you guys. Shireen, isn't she great? She's Let's great. just start there, <laughs> right? Yes. Fantastic, okay, and then we're gonna move into some other stuff. Uh, when the Trump administration uh, announced that they would be pulling from the Paris Climate Agreement, how did you guys feel about that? Katie, let's start with you. So um, I was particularly struck by um, what happened, I think, not just in terms of the signal that it sent um, to the U.S., but also globally. And I was really concerned about what that could possibly mean in terms of being able to continue action on climate change. But what ended up happening within hours after the Paris Agreement announcement happened uh, a year ago, you had CEOs, you had mayors, and you had governors all calling out in support of the Paris Agreement. Yes. So that in itself then gave me more optimism about what next steps would look like. Right. How about for you, Benjamin? Oh, I think through Katie, I have a very different understanding of what can be done. And because Katie's work focuses on cities and on you know, the local side of things, it was almost inspiring to see, okay, well, then people are all understanding that all the change is going to be on a local level. Right. Um, so I saw this kind of exciting moment where everyone was going to mobilize around it and try and make it be better for the cause than worse. So it was exciting. Katie, talk to me a little bit about the work that you do in this space. How would you describe it to people who, you know, n don't necessarily understand right away? Sure. So I work at an organization called CDP. It was mm -hmm. formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, and we started about 17 years ago. And it was quite simple. It was an ask at that time to corporations to disclose their environmental impact mm -hmm. and to report on the risks from climate change. Right. It was a paper-based questionnaire, and it's evolved now not only for companies that are responding, but for states and regions and for cities as well. So I, in particular, work with U.S. cities and, U and Canadian cities in being able to measure, manage, and then publicly report their action on climate and the risks that they're facing. Right. You're talking about hope, but a lot of people are despairing right now. Do you think that that's a, a fair response that people feel right now, like kind of disengaged or at least um, a little bit uh, worried that all of this effort might be for nothing? I think that what people can look at is understand the tools available to them. So mm -hmm. particularly, as Benjamin is saying, going and looking at that local level. So in response to Trump's removal um, and pulling out of the Paris Agreement, at this point now, in terms of the response to efforts like We Are Still In and America's Pledge, mm -hmm. you have about half of all Americans are living in either a city or a state or working for a company that has declared its support for the Paris Agreement. And what that means is that they can continue to advocate and push for their leadership in their companies or their leadership within the city mm -hmm. to be able to take further action. So knowing the tools that are available to them, I think, is really important. And that's one step that I think you can use to, to move forward. Absolutely. And there are a lot of tools that are useful. Obviously, Benjamin, you use art 
as a tool to push these narratives and to also sort of open, I think, people's minds, especially young people's minds, to the idea that they have a place in taking care of the environment. Talk to me a little bit about how you came to the conclusion that that was the best way for you to do this work. I think that I, in high school, I did a lot more kind of direct political work, and we were in New Orleans right after Katrina working and talking to people. And as I kind of found my artistic journey, it was then a full circle back to that side of me that I missed from high school, where I really felt like I was doing more. Mm -hmm. And then I think that because I've spent so much time thinking about art and thinking about theater, that that was kind of a logical progression to then bring it back to theater about climate change. Mm -hmm. And I found just through the internet um, a guy named Keith who runs Upstream Artist Collective that's committed to making theater with an environmental conscience. Mm -hmm. And for the past two years, have been making theater with him. And that's where the Lightning musical came to life that we just did and are still developing. And um, and it's always the goal is not to hit people over the head with it, right? right. Because I think people kind of shut down if it feels preachy or it feels yes, they do. like overwhelming and despairing. So it's kind of coming at it from an angle where, okay, I'm seeing a musical about a real man who was struck by lightning seven times. You're not expecting that to have this kind of climate connection. Yeah. But everything does because that's, you know, it's the world we're living in. So yes, it is. It's about yes, finding it that, that window in. And you two have found a way to, you know, have this, you know, shared passion in your lives, even though you work in the space in very different ways. It is a shared passion. What's it like for the two of you to just sit and talk about these things? Like, I mean, are you coming home and being like, you know, this is what's going on in the world? And are you coming home and saying, like, this is what I made and this is how people are reacting to it? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I seek constant um, guidance and input from Benjamin, and um, I think gives me a lot of optimism because he works with children as well and, and young people of all ages, and that is who we're building this for and what we're working towards. So I, I think that, for me, is an important drawback while I'm mired in data and analysis and policy um, and in these types of conversations. And he also, through his work, has offered me a bridge to be able to bring uh, the kind of conversations I'm exposed to and the things I've been able to learn and share um, from cities in particular to different types of people. So either that could be writers or performers or artists where I normally wouldn't necessarily talk to that community. Wow. We just did something with the, art with the Arctic cycle, mm -hmm. um, and Katie was their expert for a fundraiser. So they had three experts, one policy, one science, and one... Engineering. Engineering. And it was so exciting to see every, all these artists, mostly artists, coming up and hearing about climate policy from Katie. Yeah. How do the kids that you work with react to these conversations or to, like, the art or to the idea of, you know, their either responsibility or their pleasure in taking care of the planet? Well, they really think about it, and I think it really hits them on a gut level and whether or not they're understanding the complexity of a lot of it. I had a student who came in with a book about pollution and was reading this book and then was like clearly deep in thought and we were walking over to where I was about to teach an improv class mm -hmm. and she's clearly thinking about it and she was like, bubbles. I'm like, what? She's like, we all need to wear bubbles over our heads and then we can clean the air when it comes in. And I said, oh, 
God. But she's thinking about solutions, and I think yeah. that for a seven-year-old kid, it's like, it's almost refreshing and inspiring to look at those kids and, and see how they're really thinking about, okay, here's a problem, and what can we do about it? And that's something I think we can lose sight of. Wow, I really like, like, it just, I don't know what it is, there's something about, and you know, I know we were talking about this a little bit before we even started taping, that there is something about the imagination of children and where they're able to go and what they're able to do and what they're able to understand and then give back to us in a lot of cases. What for you, Kate, because I, I always wonder this, especially with people who work heavily with data, what is it like trying to get people to understand exactly why you do what you do and why it's so important to our future? Like, because I find that there's like this wall sometimes with people of understanding and I just can't, how do you get over it? So I think what we try and do is really meet people where they are. So mm -hmm. really understanding um, the audience that you're talking to and what might speak to them most closely. I would say, and particularly, you know, with climate change, a lot of the impacts um, that we'll experience are the, the carbon pollution and the, the local pollution, air quality, and public health. You know, you can count the number of people in, say, New York City that have asthma, and you can look at the impact um, of uh, different policies or lack of policies mm -hmm. um, that are all related to climate change, but then, but then understand what does it mean locally. So I think, you know, taking a public health angle is, is one way to do it. Um, and that's something that, you know, CDP in particular, as we're trying to look at all of the data that's coming in and being reported, try and speak to that audience. Another stakeholder that we talk to a lot is the financial community. So a lot of this information and this data is being provided back to investors who mm. really want to understand what the risks are in their portfolio. So for that group of people, we use language that's meaningful for them and so that right. they can really understand and make, you know, better financial decisions as well. It sort of sounds like it's really, and you know, stay with me here because I feel like this might feel like I'm going into the weeds and I promise I'm not. But the more you talk, the more I understand uh, how integrated both the things you do are. Because what they really are about is sort of like telling stories in one way or another. It's like you have to be able to tell stories that people can relate to, and you have to use language that they can relate to in order to help them understand their impact and the impact of other companies and organizations on the environment. And you're essentially doing the same thing. Like, it's just... It's very different ways of telling stories, but that's what you two are doing. You're telling stories to get people excited and to get people, you know, enthusiastic about taking care of the planet. Was that something that was important to you in a relationship, that when you found one, that the person understood that that was, you know, going to be a part of your life and part of your work? Benjamin? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that... You know, what you're looking for in a partner is what you're looking for in the world in some ways. You're mm -hmm. looking for someone who represents things that you love about the world. Mm -hmm. And for me, Katie was this incredible communicator, too. And, you know, even if she's just talking, she's telling a story. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it says it all. And I, I would build on that because it's you're you're trying to make sense of the story that's in front of you, and right. you know, particularly with the work that we're doing, very, you know, 
action-oriented. This is urgent. This work is important now, and we're trying to make sense of how to move forward and problem-solving, and I think, you know, in a partnership and mm -hmm. how, how do you approach problems. And, of course, you know, we're in our professional lives trying to tackle this larger environmental, you know, climate change urgent issue for now right. um, and are using, you know, the tools available to us but also the relationship to be able to kind of work through that. Yeah. So. I did make Katie a zine this weekend and a jingle for she was <laughs> going through this crazy project proposal. And even though this is not something I will ever release to the public, yeah. it was like, you know, we find ways of supporting each other a lot and talking through things. And so Super Katie may never see the Marvel universe, but, you know, she will definitely see you made her a zine, mm -hmm. but also into a superhero? Oh, yeah. Well, it's like a... Well, maybe zine is the wrong... Maybe I don't know what a zine <laughs> no, is. No, no, no. <laughs> this is not me saying, like, oh, how do those things fit together? This is me saying, why hasn't my man made me a zine <laughs> or a superhero? Get you a man who will make you a zine. That's a exactly what I need to <laughs> do. That's exactly what I need to do. And the two of you, you know, like, in this shared passion, in this shared relationship, are also building a home right here in Brooklyn and trying to, you know, I, I, I assume make sure also that Brooklyn is making some more sustainable choices. How is that going? How are you guys working in that space locally? Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, um, in Sunset Park, uh, mm -hmm. South Brooklyn, and that's actually where I live now as well. Um, and in particular, I've been um, really trying to better understand how I can get engaged locally and make sure that I'm you know, properly contributing um, to the community and then also kind of bringing home different things that, you know, I'm learning. Um, and so, you know, how do I express that and how do I do that is being able to participate, um, go to local community board meetings, make sure I understand what the issues are in the community um, and be, you know, supportive overall of, of how to work on, work on um, policy and, and issues that are important to, to Sunset Park. Yeah. How about you, especially now that you're about to make the move to Sunset Park, right? Well, it's this incredible neighborhood that mm -hmm. I'm excited to be a part of, and it's seen so many changes and has adapted to a lot from, well, Katie's mom was displaced by the building of the Verrazano Bridge, and, you know, it's a, it's a neighborhood that's been through a lot of—I guess that's Bay Ridge, not Sunset Park, but so. close. <laughs> it's a neighborhood that's been through a lot and has changed and is so vibrant and is so alive mm -hmm. and also, I think, has this sense of community that if something goes wrong, people look out for each other, which is just a good model for how oh, to yeah. live our lives. Absolutely. Um, and then for me in Crown Heights, it's also being in touch with people who live there. It's a gentrified neighborhood and mm -hmm. working with business owners who are adapting to that but also have roots in the neighborhood. Um, so I work at this incredible place called Tot Town, yeah. which on Wednesday mornings you can find me singing songs with very small children at Tot Town on Class and Avenue. And that's been an incredible way to think about, okay, everything is local, and how can I work with the business that I believe in and that is that's, doing a lot for the community and being a part of it? That's like, and it's a really thoughtful way to live and interact in, you know, the city, but also just in the world and sort of the way we should be interacting with each other. Talk to me a little bit about your play, because I want to hear about this play. And then you're going to play us the song, right? I sure am. Okay, talk to me about that. So, two different plays. The one I'm working on right now is about a real man named Roy Sullivan who lived in Virginia, who was struck by lightning seven mm -hmm. times. 
and was a park ranger, so loved to be outside, had right. a metal badge and a metal oh, gun. Man. His hair would frequently catch on fire, so he started carrying a bucket to put out his hair. Unfortunately, the bucket was also metal. So it's kind of this parable about our relationship with nature and how we sort of feel like we control it and we own it, and we're like living in the world and it's ours. And then this reminder, which for him happened seven, possibly eight times throughout his life, <laughs> we're not really in control. And and we need to adapt to understand the place where we live. Yes, we do. And so that's been a lot of fun. We did it at the Jalopy Theater in Red Hook, which is a beautiful, beautiful place. And we're recording and applying and, you know, the grind of being an artist. Yep. Um, and then there's a second play. And this other play is—it actually came out of— conversations with experts in climate, including Katie, about infrastructure mm -hmm. and how do you take this kind of unsexy thing like infrastructure and through art make it a story and make right. it something you can communicate. And for me, it was things that Katie had said about infrastructure projects that didn't have any foresight, that were kind of these short-term things, because we can, a lot of times, we can only think maybe a generation or two ahead. Right. So the piece is called Great Great, and the idea, I became this character named Beth, who was going to connect people with their great-great-grandchildren. Oh, wow. And bridge that gap so that if you have this relationship with your great-great-grandchild, maybe you take a little better care of the world. Better. And then things go horribly wrong, as things do. But that's the... Well, they have to. It's a play. Yeah. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I'm so excited to hear more about that. I cannot wait to hear this song. We'll be back in a moment with Benjamin playing as a song with an environmental focus. So don't go away. So tell us about the song you're going to play here, Benjamin. Sure thing. So this is from a piece that I did in a backyard in Bushwick mm -hmm. that introduced people with their great-great-grandchildren, mm -hmm. and or tried to, mm -hmm. and everything goes horribly wrong, and then this song happens at the end of that.
that, Benjamin. You're like the next Mr. Rogers. Oh, uh, thank you. Got to see that movie. Got to see that movie. I'm already ready for it. <laughs> and that's the show. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be back with more on Pride Month. We'll learn more about Weeksville's common ground, and we'll meet a challenger for the U.S. congressional seat in Brooklyn's 14th district. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>